Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. There have been fewer podcasts recently because I need to earn money. You can make a donation at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. A- anyway, to pay the rent, I have become the BBC's official 1968 memorializer. I'm currently writing a series of essays, rather like these podcasts, about the books and films that led to the barricades 50 years ago in New York, Paris, Chicago, and, most bloodily, in Mexico City. Those essays will air in the middle of May. My mind is working in anniversary mode, and I couldn't let this anniversary and another following shortly pass without a podcast. Seventy-five years ago this week, the Jews remaining in the Warsaw Ghetto rose up against the Nazis. Five years later, almost to the day the uprising ended, the State of Israel was founded. The two events are linked, obviously, but not necessarily in the way you might think. My theory of history is based on the unit of a grandfather's age. Forgive my gendering the concept. I'm thinking of my beloved grandfather. You can call it a grandmother's age if you like. We first come to understand the idea of that different country called the past through our grandparents, both in their stories that begin, when I was your age, followed by descriptions of a world you can barely imagine, but also later, when an event roils your society, and they say it was worse when such and such happened, or we've been through this before and it all worked out, don't worry, this will pass, you'll see. I came up with the idea of a grandfather's age as the basic unit of historical time when I was coming to the end of writing my book, Emancipation, How Liberating Europe's Jews from the Ghetto Led to Revolution and Renaissance. The book covers the 150 years from the end of Jewish ghettoization in Europe during the French Revolution to the Nazi seizure of power in 1933. A lingering question in the contemporary Jewish community in Israel and in the U.S. is, didn't they know? Why didn't the Jews all leave immediately? The book details how, in that 150-year period, full civil rights were given to Jews and then taken away and then given back, particularly in the German-speaking world. In 1933, a Jewish grandfather in Berlin might have said to his children or grandchildren, Don't worry, it was like this when I was a boy, and then they changed their minds. Anti-Semitic laws come and go, anti-Semites also. Hitler, a decade before, had been in prison. He was a clown, like most race baiters. But the Nazis, of course, were categorically different, and by the time that was understood, it was too late. But the forms they followed were familiar from history. The ghettos were re-established when they rolled into Poland in September 1939. In a perverse echo of the old days, when Jewish community leaders negotiated the terms of their tolerance and tax with local nobles, they set up Judenrat, Jewish councils, to be the conduits for their orders, Again, this would have been something the grandfathers remembered their grandfathers talking about. In spring 1940, construction began on a wall around the primary Jewish neighborhood in Warsaw. Work was completed in mid-autumn, and all Jews in the Warsaw vicinity were moved in. Approximately 450,000 people in an area of 1.3 square miles. Given the overcrowded, unsanitary conditions, epidemics began, the population's attrition, and their speed increased by a German policy of reducing food supplies into the ghetto. Starving people are more easily felled by disease. 
After a while, the Nazis realized they were letting a source of labor die uselessly, so food supplies were increased and people taken to factories to work, making munitions. And through it all, the Jewish Council continued to function, accommodating Nazi orders, playing for time, waiting for rescue, for the Germans to come to their senses, unwilling to see that they were doomed. In June 1941, Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of Russia, brought the heartland of world Jewry under Nazi control. From the Baltic to the Black Sea, an orgy of murder was initiated. In many places, the destruction was total. So many Jews to kill, mere firing squads weren't enough. In January 1942, at the Wannsee Conference in Berlin, a massive bureaucratic plan was put in place to expand death camps and transport Jews to them. Six months later, the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto were told they were being sent to resettlement camps in the east. In fact, they were being sent to Treblinka, a death camp 50 miles away. Six thousand a day was the demand the Nazis made of the Judenrat leader, Adam Chernikov. He was under no illusion about what resettlement meant. He negotiated as many exemptions as he could, including trying to get orphaned children off the trains. The Nazis refused that request. They took hostages to enforce compliance. A hundred would be shot if the deportation quota wasn't met. Chernikov committed suicide. Janusz Korczak, head of the orphanage and an internationally famous children's author, was offered a chance to remain in the ghetto. He left with his children and shared their fate at Treblinka. Two months after the deportations began, between a quarter of a million and 300,000 residents of the ghetto had been murdered at Treblinka and in satellite death camps. Finally, it became clear. There was no rescue. There was no mercy. Two underground groups began arming themselves to make some kind of stand. Death was their fate. Better to fight than march into the gas chamber. Sporadic attacks began early in 1943. Passover came late that year, and on the eve of the holiday, April 19, 1943, the Germans entered the ghetto to clear the remaining Jews out. The two underground groups, one leftist and Zionist, the other Polish patriotic and connected to the Polish resistance movement, opened fire. After four days of being pushed back by nothing more than rifles and Molotov cocktails, the Germans began to systematically burn the ghetto to the ground. The uprising effectively ended after three weeks, when the Germans discovered the command bunker of ZOB, the leftist Zionist group of fighters at 18 Miller Street. The group had committed mass suicide. On May 16th, with only a handful of buildings and the ghetto walls left standing, SS Commander Jürgen Strope pressed the button on a detonator and blew up the great synagogue of Warsaw, a Wagnerian flourish, to signify the end of the uprising. In the end, virtually nobody got out alive. My unit of history, a grandfather's age, requires grandfathers. If there are none, how do historical events pass into memory? When David Ben-Gurion declared the state of Israel five years after the great synagogue was blown up, most of the Holocaust survivors were still in displaced persons camps in Europe. In his provocative personal history of Israel, 
my promised land. Ari Shavit honestly recalls that survivors, when they arrived in Israel, were not quite pariahs, but not given special respect. They were a reminder of something, the seeming docility with which European Jewry surrendered to their fate. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was the exception and became legendary, especially after the diaries of some of its key participants, kept and then buried, came to light and became the basis of several books, best known of them being Mila 18, or to say it correctly, Miwa 18, by Leon Uris. Uris is arguably the most influential Jewish writer of the post-war years. Yes, Saul Bellow won the Nobel Prize, and Philip Roth, Norman Mailer, Joseph Heller got all the others, and they get all the critical notice. But for influence on Jews and the wider society, no one touches Uris. He mythologized the foundation of the State of Israel in Exodus and turned the doomed Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto into heroes. My guess is, if you were to ask most American Jews who have made Aliyah to Israel in the last 50 years, which writer had greater influence on their sense of Jewish identity, Philip Roth or Leon Uris, the man who created Ari ben Kanan in Exodus and Andrei Androvsky in Miwa 18, would come out way ahead. I read Miwa 18 shortly after it was published. I was 12. It was the first thing I read about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. How I internalized the story is still being revealed to me as I slowly approach the age of being a grandfather, even though I have no grandchildren. Being who I am, I intellectualize my particular response to the story. When I find myself trying to explain the complicated response of diaspora Jewry to the actions of the Israeli government in Gaza or the West Bank, I ask Israel's critics who often are terribly overwrought, to think of something they were doing five years ago. Do you have a sense of what five years is as a length of time? They nod yes. Five years before I was born, Auschwitz was still in operation. And that is why I'm very happy there is an Israel, even though I deplore its government, and that it fights back. Trauma, latency, neurosis... Sigmund Freud, my honorary great-grandfather, came up with that formulation. I think it holds some truth. I know that since Solomon was building the temple, there has never been a time or place where Jews have been more secure. And yet, from time to time, I find myself daydreaming about the Warsaw Ghetto and the ultimate existential questions it raises for Jews, Israeli or diaspora. How would you have responded in the Warsaw Ghetto? Would you have reported to the Umschlagplatz, marched to the train, 6,000 a day, and gone meekly to Treblinka? Or would you have gone underground straight away and started killing Nazis? When I was 20, I knew what I would have done. But if I was a parent of young children, then what? If my actions might lead to my family being butchered, or a hundred who had nothing to do with me murdered, what would I have done? These daydreams are neurotic. I know. Objectively, Israel and world Jewry do not face a threat like the Third Reich. I'm sorry, Iran doesn't cut it. And objectively, the trauma didn't happen directly to me. But still, it happened to people who, like me, just happened to be Jews. Jews need no prompting to remember the 75th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. They're entitled to understand or misunderstand the deeper historical meaning of the event. 
the grandfathers of Warsaw who could have explained it are all dead or were never born. But the wider world, particularly Israel's neighbors, should reflect on the reality of the event and the fact that more than nuclear weapons, Israel's strength comes from the memory of the Warsaw Ghetto. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. And as I said at the beginning, you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.